Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there. Are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit ViralGrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofsetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. You know, Rachel, we've spoken with so many folks about the business of the business, and we've learned about people on such a personal level since we started this podcast. I know. Honestly, that's been the most surprising thing. We've learned so much about the people who are leading commerce behind the biggest brands. But one of the things that we haven't really dug deeper into is the village that it takes to make great things happen, meaning it's not just a leader, it's the team around them. And admittedly, we didn't even think about asking any of our guests these questions until John Halverson came onto the show and started giving all these amazing shout outs to incredible team members. Yeah, I feel like when we launch this podcast, we're going to have to like tag everyone he gave a shout out to to continue to pay it forward. And it shows us two things. First, great leaders prop up their people and give them enough rope and clarity to succeed. But second, how important it is to consider the monumental job it is to be sitting in these incredibly large organizations and getting to move like ballerinas with agility when there are so many people and personalities involved. And speaking of personalities, we sure are about to have one on our show. Some of you might know him as John, others as Halvo, Halverson. He's probably one of the biggest characters and most brilliant people in our industry, full of candor, comfort, inspiration, and humor. Let's bring him on to the show. To be able to have John on the show, this guy never does press. Thank you so much. I do it for you. I do for you, Sarah. I will do for you. <laughs> I think that speaks to a long history of friendship, partnership over the years. You and I know each other a very long time, going back to when we were both agency side. True. Um, and thank God neither of us are anymore. No offense to people at agencies. There goes half our listeners. <laughs> they know. They just wish they were out. That's a whole other story. John, you've seen it all. You've been in multiple categories. You've been agency side, you've been client side, you've done advanced education. 
what are the pros and cons of being brand side, especially in CPG and especially CPG in today's world, if you will? Yeah. I've worked in a lot of different categories, technology, financial services, automotive, and Twitter got to work with all the different categories. I always take towards CPG because I just think that ultimately it's a category where brands matter. And I love it because it's strategy. I mean, ultimately what makes CPG interesting is the number one lever for growth is brands. And I don't think you can say that a lot of other industries. A lot of other industries, the number one lever for growth would be digital transformation. But I think in CPG, it's interesting because brands matter. It speaks to your ability to extend to other spaces. It speaks to your ability to command a higher price premium. And because brands matter, strategy matters. And so ultimately, you're not able to solve things by just throwing money at problems. You're not able to throw it through quick wins. Ultimately, it speaks to the long-termism of it. And so I think being a client at a CPG is really awesome because ultimately, you're making decisions of consequence. You have to think long-term. That ultimately brings forth some really amazing talent and attracts other great people to the industry. Absolutely. And you've brought in some tremendous talent over the years that you've been in Monsley's, also some former agents folks as well. And the brands that you represent are truly iconic. They're just some of the best in the world, obviously, Oreo and Cadbury and so many that are absolutely incredible. One of the fun things about agency life is you get to work on a diversity of brands. So how is it when you're really focused on cookies, biscuits, confections, and gum? How's that when you're narrowing your focus? Does it help I find there's so many toys. You know, we're super blessed in Mondelez. You have 853 brand country combinations that I can play in, which is enough playgrounds for every single day of the year. You know, I could have two. That's worse than a Rubik's Cube. It is worse than a Rubik's Cube. And it's just like, you have a lot of different things you can play with. I'm always in awe of marketers who have like global, but they're on one brand. Like I can't imagine being the global head of a visa or, you know, like, could you work on one brand? And yes, they have different divisions, but when I'm frustrated with one project, I go on to a different one and I can come back to it. And I think that that's something that I really enjoy and what keeps me in CPG and keeps me in the game. I do remember the first time I, uh, this was part of craft, but I got to meet a person who was then the VP of cookies. And that was like my first introduction to somebody at craft. And I was like, you're the VP of cookies. That's like, that's like the coolest. I want your business card. Like I need that right now. Yeah. And a month later, I met the SVP of cheese. And I'm like, I don't know if I'd rather be the head cheese or the VP of cookies. These are so freaking cool. But you're right. You, you do get a bit silent there. But it's also interesting when you hear people like we're a company of makers and bakers. And like, that's very, very true. And I feel that very clearly. Like when you get out onto the front lines, you get into the R&D people. I mean, literally, these guys are the ones who are thinking about what the future of a cookie looks like and the texture of it. And even when you're just sitting there, just having a really good conversation with the CFO and he's just like, try this piece of chocolate. Like, isn't this great? What's the texture of it? And I just don't think those are the conversations that happen in like retail or in clothing or anything else. Like, I think it's just kind of cool. I sit there and have cookies and milk with the CFO and that kind of makes my day. You're just a grown up businessman. I'm an adult, I swear, (laughs) really. You know, John, you made a a comment that in CPG, brands is what wins. Now, CPG has gone through transformation because of the pandemic, right? People are saying this was the digital transformation that the category needed. Mm -hmm. Yet, Mondelez seemed to be overly prepared for the pandemic. Like, you guys were more e-commerce ready than most of the organizations that we interview. What was the foresight to overinvest in the discipline of e-commerce when maybe some would have considered it unproven? 
I have to give credit. I'm a little bit of a fan of the show, so I listen to some of your former colleagues, and you've had some great people on. But it, it's people like Cindy Chen, Lisa Mann, who were here earlier in Mondeley, along with Bonin. There was a stat once that Oreo was the number eight cookie on Amazon, and I remember that's the day that everything changed. <laughs> so, like Oreo, which is the dominant cookie in the U.S., Amazon came in. I was in the meeting, and they said, "You're the number eight cookie online," and that was like the halt the presses moment. And this was back in like 2013, 2014, and I think that caused things to get into motion. And obviously, there needed to be pivots in consumer behavior, but I think that a lot of the work to start thinking about those things matters. And so that gets you to a point where it's awareness and some great leadership from our C-suite in terms of just preparing and thinking about things. We were doing board directors at Amazon headquarters. I mean, years ago, well before the pandemic, right when I first got there. And uh, and then when something like this does happen, it's all about just a massive acceleration. And there's a good stat from IBM that all of a sudden e-commerce penetration is now five years more forward. And so acceleration, like any acceleration, whether it's a personal growth spurt in high school or ultimately change in business, they hurt. They hurt a lot. And so acceleration hurts. And so when you see this, you just have a choice. And I think the hidden superpower of Mondelez is the ability to scale. When we make a decision, hmm. damn it, we get after it. And so in the middle of this, like very early on, and because we have high exposure to China business, which is one of our more robust, we saw that push and we said, look, half of this is permanent. Go. And so the second we saw China, the rest of the world said go. And that prepares you a lot more. And so combination of some early work and a good, you know, some foundations that we're still building on, and then just making a commitment go really helps set you up to be successful. And we still have a lot of work to do. I don't think anyone solved it. We're not perfect, but I think it allows you to be a little bit more prepared and just, you know, focused. I just love what you said because it feels like the values of the company came into play hearing that you were the number eight, playing into scale. I'm sure 20 years ago, the same things would have been said for perhaps like convenience and television. Right. We're not a laggard. You know, Oreo is not a laggard. It is a leader. And, and much of the work that Sarah did, you know, when she was at 360i, our agencies do, our brand teams do, it's very much about that cookie being a leader. And so, you know, when you see a stat like this, you just get mad. You get mad. And as a company, we're not the type of people who are vocally mad, but in the back of our head as we're laying down to bed, we're just like, I'm the number eight cookie on Amazon. And, you know, like tomorrow that's not going to happen. So I think it just motivates us to really kind of get after it. And ultimately you see some really good collaboration across the organization to make it happen. I think it's a sign of decisive leadership. That's, that's, that's the other thing that has been very consistent is, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to invest in this and just freaking go. And that's been top down and supported with great talent bottoms up. So, I mean, it really does speak to that because e-commerce is one of those things that for lots of big organizations has fallen through the cracks, yep. has had no home yep. or has had a home in the basement in, you know, no windows in the cockroaches. You're, you're sure your office with the cockroaches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or it's like on shiny board of directors decks, but there's no follow through to it. I give them credit. They put people on it, smart people, some of our best people on it. And I think they did a good job of figuring out what needed to be, when it needed to be given space to incubate it and protect it. And then when it needed to be brought into the business in a much bigger way and put on people's radars. And, And that's tough, you know, and I won't say, I think the one thing that plays to our advantage culturally 
we're not a very siloed organization and we're not perfect. I mean, still there's a dedicated e-commerce team and we would love for that to be perhaps more integrated overall, but ultimately it's a highly collaborative organization. I, I like to describe Mondelez as the ultimate team game. There are no superstars. There's no one-off players. There's no one who's like out there trying to hit home runs. If you want to succeed in that company, you play a team game. Ultimately, I think that plays to our strength because e-commerce is team game, right? You have to have marketing, sales distribution, your PPA, right? Like that requires a team game. And so you see excellence in e-commerce, you will see a culture that ultimately is able to work collaboratively across multiple functions because no silo can run that at scale. They'll fall flat on their face. I know your role is is global, but I will say just personally as a loyal Oreo shopper and consumer. Fanatic. Perhaps. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really cool was, was the way you guys have been dealing with PPA. I mean, not to get like hyper-tactical, but just looking at it as a consumer because, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I have no idea how well the bags, like the bags of the three rows of Oreos ship versus two packs in a box. The two packs in a box, they're fabulous. No breakage. They're great. They ship well, like they're stackable. Like you guys are thinking e-com first. And by the way, you're incredibly discoverable. So I think it's a credit to, you know, you talked about like the first phase with like Bonin and Cindy and Lisa, like that was the evangelist phase. You got to the educate phase, but now you're at that integrate phase where you're really bringing it forth. So you in your, in your media creative marketing role, you're not part of that e-com team, but you're 100% thinking about e-com in the context of your comms design, right? Yeah. I mean, just for anyone who's listening, PPA is price pack architecture, and this is us being a little bit of CPG nerds, but <laughs> price pack architecture just refers to the different sizes, formats, and, and how we ship it. I would say one is, again, we share this information. There's really good organizational sharing. Like I understand what's going on in PPA. Do I need it necessarily to perfectly execute my functional assignments in media and creative? No, but it's super helpful for me to be an enterprise leader inside the organization. So one, we share that. And two, I'll never forget, like, this is just a powerful antidote. Like, I knew we were going to be good at this because I was in Deerfield headquarters and there were all these Amazon boxes for one of the C-suite guys. And I'm like, what, what are you, what's in the boxes? He's like, I'm shipping all of the cookies, our cookies and the competitor cookies. I want to see how they come out on the other side. Like, who's this crumbled? Who has it? You know, and then they're like opening them up and he's like, John, see how many crumbled ones are in here? And we're like in there counting them out. And like, when the C-suite starts caring about that, you're going to win at this. I love that story so much as a founder. Yeah, There's so much depth in there. Again, it goes back to decisiveness and that ownership culture, but it does fascinate me. Like when people were asking me like, well, before I got to Prof's Harrow years ago, when people were asking me, well, are people going to buy everyday goods on Amazon? And, you know, I'm like, okay, I see it for paper towels, but I don't understand how Tide is going to ship. The thing that's your biggest asset, which is your size and your iconic look and feel is now your biggest liability because it's heavy yeah, and impossible to ship. And it's going to be a loss leader. So you're going to sit there and sell a lot of tide just so that you could sell a lot of bounty. Or do you reimagine the game? And there are those who are, but you see it's made space for all of these startups that are making sheets of laundry, no different, like a fabric softener sheet. And it's not designed for brick and mortar. Yeah, innovation. It is really important because to your point, 
of all the things I'm bad at, and there's a long list of those at the top of it. I'm not very good at like the crystal ball on some of these things. Like I never thought programmatic was going to be as big as it is. I was always like, Oh, this is never going to scale. And like, obviously now it's the core. And I have to tell you, like, I remember doing, I worked on P and G on the agency side and, you know, I saw that rise of it, but when I got into food, I, I didn't see it. I didn't, but like, once you experience it, you can't go back. You know what I mean? Like I literally, through this whole pandemic, I'm just literally seeing everyone go onto Instacart. I'm like, why do I go to a grocery store? Like why, when I was looking for apartment neighborhoods, did I care how close I was to the grocery store and what it would be? That's like the dumbest criteria ever as to where I'm going to live. And on that point, I think one thing I think will totally change the game. I literally think because we're all going to restaurants and we're having to use our phone to pull up the menu with the AR, like that is going to change that entire dynamic of that. Like that's just, that is the game changer that they needed, you know, in order to scale. John, if you uh, will entertain me for a moment and we fly to another part of the world, you know, we've had folks on who have global roles and they've been sharing with us insights. Like, for example, there's a lot of boom happening in India right now with alcohol. There's plant-based food trends. What are you seeing outside of the U.S. in terms of consumer trends that you think our U.S. listeners should be paying attention to? I think if you want to see what trends are going to happen in food, go to Asia. I am always just believed that Asia is driving the future of culture, whether it's television, whether it's technology and increasingly food. The other place I would tell you, I think people aren't talking about is Latin America. I am totally switched on to Latin America. Everyone immediately goes to India and China. I'm, I'm telling people to look South because we have a very enthusiastic leader, Maria Mojica, who just literally, I mean, literally pandemic hit, Right before Easter, it could have ruined what we would do in chocolate. And instead, this guy, Gabriel Valley and our team figures out a way to do last mile distribution of Easter eggs and just like pushes it all the way through. And I just think the rapid innovation in Latin America, I think you will see markets like Brazil shoot from nothing to something quite consequential over the next few years. And it's just, how do you know? It's like, what's the tipping point or what are you looking for? You got to look at the consumer. It's like all of a sudden is like, has that consumer just fundamentally changed? And when you talk to them and you see these verbatims, you're like, they're not going back, you know? And, and that's kind of ultimately what I look for is kind of on a larger scale. I'll be curious to see in other markets like the UK and Australia, where that really moves, like how far that moves. That's a very well-developed ecosystem. And I'm, I'm unclear as to where that goes all the way, to be honest. I don't know if that will be as dramatic as I would like, but I, I've got some heart for it. In Latin America, who are the dominant platforms right now? That is to be determined. That is an open game. Mm. I mean, again, I see a lot of potential out of the last milers just to be able to solve like the fundamental, just the logistics of that. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think that that's totally so. I mean, obviously, Carrefour is a force in Brazil. There's there's Rapido. I mean, there's just a lot of exciting people, but I I don't think anyone can tell you who's going to win Latin America. And to some extent, that should make it exciting. It's interesting because... France was one of the biggest early movers on click and collect. And I don't think people necessarily saw that coming where Carrefour has like four or 5,000 different locations where you can just pick up your groceries that, and it's not their physical locations. It's completely supported through dark stores. And a super smart retailer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like on data, Mm -hmm. like just super smart. I've spent a lot of time with retailers over the last year and a half. We, we do a lot of special stuff with Target and Roundell through Google ADH, which I'm really excited about. And, and I've started to have more conversations just globally as I've traveled around. And Carrefour is one that impresses me. But with a lot of retailers, you go to it, and I think their challenge is 
how do they have consistency in a lot of what they're doing? Because if you look at their data architecture, and this is getting a little wonky, you can see that they've had regime change because it's like they have built a house with three architects. There's part of it that's in Tudor style, part of it that's in modern Renaissance, part in Baroque. And it's, you can just see it. And I think ultimately to get to great, they're going to need consistency and a consistent strategy to take that over time. And they're going to need to have consistency and leadership. And so I think some retailers who are doing well have established that consistency. They have a consistent plan. They found a good tech stack and partner, and they're going to play that out for the long term. And I think that will be a game changer in terms of enabling some of these capabilities. But in some, you just see the turnover and you just go, Ooh, it's going to be tough. I saw this video the other day that somebody had posted who works at Tesco. And it was a video from 1984 where the elderly were struggling to be able to go to the supermarket. And so they had an, a, the ability for you to order your groceries from Tesco on your television. And you see this like dot matrix interface And like, that was like the first e-commerce done by like this 70 something year old woman. And I'm just totally blown away by this. I'm like, A, it starts with the seniors and, and, and use case based. And Tesco is another very good example of what you just said. Alessandra, I mean, she's super smart. I mean, their chief customer officer, she is super smart. And there are some very savvy people in that business. I think sometimes people underestimate the quality of executives in those organizations and Tesco, Carrefour, Target. I've had the privilege of being close and I am consistently uh, super impressed. Just the quality of thinking and how fast they're driving digital transformation and how they talk about personalization. Yeah, I, I would agree. And that's been a, that's been a big thing of yours. Well, while on the subject of the UK, you know, um, at Profitero, we looked at trends on Prime Day, and on day one of Prime Day, nine out of Toblerone. Yeah, Toblerone. That's right. So yes, you made the top ten of movers and shakers. Boom. The other nine, by the way, all liquor, all booze, nine booze, one Toblerone. Those things go together. Absolutely. But that four and a half kilo bar, yum. Yum. Yeah. Look, I, I would tell you, we've got a really exciting global brand leader, Emmanuel on Toblerone and uh, VCCP is the agency and they're doing some exciting work. Like that's a brand to watch in 2021. I'm putting that on my, one of my top three brands to watch in the Mona Lisa portfolio in 2021 is what those guys will do with it. You know what? That's fascinating because that's an airport brand. Well, you know what? It is, it is, but it doesn't have to be. I would tell you that that's, that doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be. It should be a pantry brand. I freaking love that. Well, I, I, I think it could even be more than that. And I, I can't give away their strategy because oh. that would be naughty of me. But I'm telling you, the most exciting brand world that I've seen of any of the global brands in terms of what they're doing for next year, I, I would tell you that's one to watch. The interesting thing about your liquor insight, this is probably one of these weird anecdotes, um, but we have the internal Mondelez Marketing Excellence Awards, and we have a category that really celebrates failure uh, because you you will invariably screw up. And, you know, I, I'm just like, I can tolerate failure. I can't tolerate, uh, tolerate incompetence is kind of my line. I'm like, look, one of these is okay. One of these is not. And um, they do mass traffic retail, and they had done this study and they had done this computer simulation that showed that if they moved Toblerone to this section of the store, sales would go up. So they had done the simulation. They had done all the testing. So then they go to put it in execution in the market and sales go down by 6%. And like the simulation is totally wrong. Sales are bombing. This is all going to help. 
So they go into the store to figure out like what's gone wrong. The computer simulation says this is perfect optimal placement. What the computer simulation couldn't figure out, they had put themselves next to fragrances and perfume and chocolate next to perfume doesn't work. So that's why sales had bombed. So they then accounted for this, like literally thinking about olfactory, they optimized, they put themselves next to liquor, shot through the roof. So ultimately, I'm not surprised, but it very much triggers every time I see Toblerone, I think of this poor brand manager who's like, so we run simulation and what we discover, oops, by perfume. <laughs> oh my gosh, great. That example is the beautiful thing about e-com, right? Because in a physical store, you probably are going to have chocolate and booze next to each other. But within e-com, you could actually create a, an amazing bundle. Uh, you know, our, our friends at Hershey's did that with Halloween costumes. In an environment like Amazon, conversions went through the roof. Exactly. Bundling is, and it's like World Travel Retail does it well, physical retail doesn't. Like World Travel Retail gets it right, but the other ones, they haven't figured that out. So, John, you're probably the person to talk to us about retail as media. And with the social platforms continuing to invest in commerce, and retail platforms continuing to invest in media. Where does this all end? Is there a winner take all? Is it Roundell and Facebook duking it out? Like, how do you see this all playing out? I think it's a good question. We totally understand when retailers say, hey, data is our most valuable asset. We agree. But I don't know if it will always be bundled to media. I think that that is an antiquated way of ultimately monetizing that asset. And I think that there will be new ways to monetize that asset. I don't think they'll necessarily be in media. I think you're going to have a hard time if you're around uh, any of the retailers to create a media offering that can compete with the platform. So I'll say, I think platforms win. I think retailers find different ways to monetize because if you're the retailers, really, you should be just trying to clean up all the bad brand measurement. I don't think there's any CPG who goes, oh my gosh, I think brand lift studies are perfect as they are. I would clean up all of that as the first opportunity. And I think retailers will find that there's better ways to monetize their data than appending it to 728 by 90s. So I think that's where that work goes versus into the space of ultimately this being some giant media showdown. So John, where does search come into all of this? Look, search is going to be core. I think it's the number one driver of a lot of e-commerce business. I think you will continue to see ultimately search grow to ultimately what people can attract in terms of consumers searching on their platforms. And that's anyone can win that game. And it's literally just based on how much volume they can have. And so that will get highly democratized. I think what's interesting to think about is retailers' ability in display or some other areas is just you know, it's attractive business because the margins are so high. And certainly when you compare it to their core business margin, it's great. But can you ultimately build algorithms in the machine learning to be able to do it? Because today those things are fairly priced. Ultimately, if you imagine the perfect scenario, I'm targeting someone who's buying my competitor's product. I can target them at the right time. Ultimately, that tends to be fairly priced to ultimately what I could buy today. Or it's like, hey, it's twice as effective, but it costs twice as much. Well, what's the risk reward versus all of that? Makes sense. So I have a unusual question, probably something you get asked actually every day. What's your favorite Mondelez product? I am at my very core, a Cadbury chocolate guy. So I'm a Cadbury chocolate guy. I just love the brand. I had a very special thing when I came onto Mondelez. Uh, certainly I was very fortunate that I was very close to the Oreo team, but in like my week two, I didn't know anyone. My agency wasn't the most popular with the client at the time. I went to this global summit 
and brought Purdy, who is the nicest, warmest man ever. Literally, I'm in Czech Czech Republic. I haven't been to the town. Like, literally, I'm just like, why did I leave P&G? P&G was so nice. Why am I working with these guys? He just welcomes me into his global summit, gives me this, like, big, warm Indian hug you can only get from Bharat Purdy, and, like, just literally goes, let's have a chocolate bar together. And after that, I, I'm sold. I don't care. Like, I'm Cadbury for life. So I absolutely love the brand, and it has everything to do with that man. You know something, John, getting to know you in this interview, I really appreciate how you constantly are giving your colleagues shout outs. I have to say, we haven't seen that a lot. And I think it speaks to the type of leadership that you have. There's a lot of leaders who listen, are listening into this episode. What advice do you have for them if they're in a position where they really need to transform their organization? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you do is just listen, you know, like, listen, if you're a great leader, you probably are in a great company. There are smart people in your company and they are probably have the answers. But have you ever created the psychological safety for them to tell you what's going on? And I spend a lot of time thinking about how I create that safety. How do I make it okay? for people to call to tell me, hey, this is not a good idea, or how is it not? How do I ultimately make it clear what the rules of the game are, what the boundaries are? Because my insight is when you give people what the boundaries are, they'll run to the boundary. Whereas if you don't, they'll stay at the center and they'll just do safe things. So I try and be like, listen, you have decision rights all the way out to here because they will run all the way out right there to that fence and sometimes try and climb over it. Whereas if I don't, they make a bunch of safe decisions and, uh, and then ultimately, I think when you're trying to drive transformation, get your narrative right, you know, like ultimately, you know, what's your story and what are you really trying to get people to do and be just clear about those pivots. And so that's, that's what I think about. And I'm fortunate, like I said, I can shout out to a lot of people because they do a lot of amazing work. I, I work at a company with a whole bunch of talented people. It's why I'm here at Mondelez. There is just literally talented people across the org and it's a team game. So create the culture you want, work with great people. Life takes care of itself. That's beautiful. I think I'm going to cry. Legit. The role of global is to help local win. I, you know, like I don't do anything here. Like I, we don't win. We don't sell more chocolate bars because of things I do. It's because of things in the BU. It's because of my team and other people. And I, I just love enabling that. But ultimately, my goal is to get winning assets to, lo- to local markets faster, better, cheaper, and help them win. And I, I've just really been clear on that. It's awesome. That's incredible. And I I will attest you to have an incredible team. And I'm sure Rachel has had a similar experience as well. I think it is time for our final question. John. Yes. What is the bravest thing that you've ever done? I think the bravest thing I've ever done. I, I had in a pitch, I had to, I'll never forget this. I was 23 years old. I was working at OMD and I got pulled into a pitch and it was just a client we weren't going to win. It was, we were pitching Bayer and it was Alka-Seltzer. And um, we, I was just a kid and I got pulled this pitch. It was a little bit of a long shot. And they're like, John, you know, this is just going to be an idea and we just need you to riff. And I went totally off scripts because I had this idea in the back of my head that I was just believing in. And it was for Alka-Seltzer. And I wanted to do a tie up with the movie, James Bond. And I was like, it's like danger for uh, for dinner, danger for breakfast, Alka-Seltzer in between. And we'd have the martini glass with two Alka-Seltzer in it, the whole nine yards. And I'm totally going off strip and I am just riffing. And I literally have the 23 year old kid has moved, pushed the media director out of the way, has grabbed the like 
whiteboard marker and I'm up there rolling up my sleeves and I'm drawing out what it's going to look like. And I, I just went for it. And um, it was one of those things. And, and I just was really lucky because Kathleen Brookbanks was there, Sean Finnegan there, and they're just there giving me the look like, keep going. This is great. I, I just felt super empowered to do it. And ever since then, it's always just given me the comfort to be my most authentic self. And I find whenever I'm not being my most authentic self is when I'm not at my best, you know, because I'm being guarded or I'm not being myself or I'm, you know, dressing up in a suit, like screw that. Like you're going to see me in a Michigan sweatshirt six days a week. It's just who I am. Anytime I drift from that, I usually find, I find my performance drifts too. I can certainly attest after a decade of friendship that that is 100% authentic you, that that is 100% authentic you. And, uh, how, how fortunate to be in that pitch with Kathleen and Sean and get your career off to a great start with the two of them. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just icing because you could have been in a room with leaders that would not have encouraged that behavior and you would have a very different outcome. Yeah, I mean. You're living in a van down by the river. Listen, I mean, I, I, this is my advice to everyone. Like to anyone who's out there listening to this is like my advice for how to have a great career is care who you work for. A lot of times you care about what's the agency or what is the client. And I can tell you, particularly early in your career, that's not what matters. Um, ultimately, it is who you work for. And I had the blessing of working, I mean, throughout my entire career. I mean, whether it's Shelly Paxson, Kate Stevenson, Sean Finnegan, Laura Desmond, like I, I, I'm just Kathleen Brookbank. Like I've worked with just top-notch people and they have just really invested because, and so you learn just good habits. You know what I mean? I think I have a great work ethic and like, I I'm really care about other people. I get that from Sean. And, you know, like I, I just say, care about who you work for because it may not show up on a resume, but it will show up in the quality of your work and your character of you as a person. Well, it sounds like you've been well cared for and you've paid it forward in spades. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. We're super thrilled that you were able to join us, but the the knowledge that you've imparted and more the inspiration for other leaders to be a little bit more authentic to themselves, to push their people forward, to stand back and give them those very, very big boxes to play in. Those are great insights and inspiration. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it to Legends of the Industry for having me. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of True, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.